I'm Philippa Tolley and this week Insight looks at how rapid tourism growth has taken New Zealand by surprise and the tensions that's causing. In the next five years, the government predicts four and a half million visitors will be wheeling their suitcases across the tarmac in search of a New Zealand adventure. But as tourist numbers hit record after record and they're encouraged to head off the beaten track, is New Zealand ready to make a success of it? At this ice site in Wellington, even in late autumn, there's still a steady flow of tourists trying to get a handle on what to see in the capital and where to head off to next. Tourism New Zealand's been doing the hard yards to pull in visitors and market New Zealand to the world. Statistics New Zealand says in the year to March 2016, visitor arrivals hit a record 3.26 million, up 10% from the previous March. Annual visitor arrivals broke the 3 million mark last year and have been rising steadily. Ready? Ready? Yeah? Yep. yeah ready to go. I believe I can fly. Lately, Tourism New Zealand's been harnessing the power of celebrity, using Chinese actors like Sean Doe, who in this promotional video is bungee jumping. The aim is to tempt the growing Chinese middle class to come here and to step off the organised coach tours and get out into the regions for a more authentic adventure. And it's paying off, with Chinese tourists now the second biggest visitor market. Many smaller towns and lesser-known spots are finding they're finally drawing in the visitors. But it's happening so fast that in some places it's taking its toll on the very unspoilt nature and friendly locals the tourists have come for. What do you like about New Zealand? Why did you come to New Zealand? Uh, I love nature. I love nature. I love, uh, you know, the atmosphere. Yeah, the atmosphere and the way people are over here. It's good. Uh, they are very polite, very, you know, um, cooperative, cooperative, cooperative people are there. Everywhere there is something to see. You don't have to drive two hours to go somewhere to do a, to do a walk or a waterfall every 20 minutes where you can swim in. Uh, and, and the people, yeah, really nice people. What do you like about the people? <laughs> They're really, really helpful. Um, I think way more helpful than I would get in the Netherlands. Ask any visitor why they've suffered through a long flight to head to this country at the bottom of the world and you'll invariably be told it's both our natural environment and our friendly nature that prompted their arduous journey. I'm Teresa Cowie and this insight asks if New Zealand's ready to cope with the rapid growth of tourism and what's being done to protect our best assets, our locals and our landscapes. Here at Mission Social Hall and Cafe, we serve many tourists. Same for my brother-in-law, Bo, at Duke's Waikiki. And top chef, Sheldon, on Maui. My cousin, Okalani, teaches hula to visitors. Uncle Mike builds resorts. That's Mark Noguchi, a chef from Honolulu. He's appearing in an online video campaign that's happening right now in Hawaii to remind locals to be nice to tourists and about the benefits of tourism, which is the American state's biggest employer. We got a lot of tourism in our family, and we take care of family. Take care of tourism. It's a family business. 
The tropical paradise is an old hand in the tourism game, but with record numbers visiting the islands in recent years, locals are starting to get sick of being swamped by tourists. In New Zealand, if the latest projections for annual visitor numbers by 2022 are reached, that'll mean that for roughly every local, there'll be one tourist, using the roads, the public loos, the bins, the hotels, and during peak holiday times, seeing the sights of Aotearoa. But while New Zealand may be a way off the decades-long build-up of tourist fatigue happening in Hawaii, some smaller towns and beauty spots are already beginning to feel the impact of hosting a lot of tourists. The beautiful Blue Spring near Putararu in South Waikato. The water here is so clear, you can see right to the bottom. Even though it's actually quite unclear where the bottom of it is, it's so deep. It seems like everyone wants a piece of this beauty spot. 70% of the country's bottled water is drawn from the river that runs through it. And in the past 10 years, visitor numbers have gone from 12,000 to more than 40,000, and the area is struggling to cope. The spring itself sits over in that, uh, and nestled in against the rocks over the back from us. Uh, and you see just how clear the water is. It is beautiful. What I would point out, though, is the challenge we've had um, again this summer with the impact on this area is that the, uh, the the river weed that you can see to the right of us here mm-hmm. that used to run right down across and right back across to the Blue Spring. A lot of that's been ripped out just because of the number of people that have been walking in and swimming in the spring. And that's is... not just any sort of weed. It's actually really beautiful weed, isn't it? It's yeah, this amazing yeah. colour. The green's really shown up by the blueness of the water. Yes, yeah, exactly. And you can see directly in front of us here where people access the uh, the, the waterway. Um, it, it, has, it has all gone. It's just been yes. uh, it's been degraded by the uh, by the people wandering in and out. Craig Hobbs is the chief executive of the South Waikato District Council. He says littering, traffic jams, and parking problems are upsetting locals, and plants growing on the riverbank near the spring have been trampled on by visitors. He says the success of the spring has taken the council by surprise, and now it's playing catch-up. Yeah, it's unintended consequences. You know, we've uh, we have marketed the area, we've marketed the spring and the and the walkway, and we've had you know good good numbers on it. But uh, for whatever reason, um, all of a sudden people have just cottoned onto it, and uh, and we we really aren't coping well. So yeah, it is a lesson. You know, when you do these things, you need to have a plan in place to make sure you can. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you know, it's very, very important that someone like a or a district council like us actually plan ahead, which, to be honest, we hadn't done because we didn't anticipate what would happen. Um, to make sure we can uh, a manage the the uh, the pressure on the track, um, provide the right facilities for our visitors, but also leveraging the opportunity around those visitors, getting them back into Pataru and to Tira to spend their money because that's obviously what's important to us. The council's already added new toilets, but a wooden barrier with steps down to the river intended to stop people crawling on the banks has actually encouraged people to get in the water and cause more damage. The council can't ban people from going in the water, but it's putting up signs to discourage swimmers with before and after pictures of the damage that's been done. But will the spring cope with even more visitors this summer?
The answer to do we want more people probably at the moment is no. We, we need to manage the numbers we've got coming through and we need to leverage the opportunity that those visitors present. I, I think um, without having, you know, we haven't done the overall strategy or plan around this at the moment as yet, but you know, I think reality is um, any more people is just going to put too great a pressure on us. We need to, as I say, we need to cater for the, the people we do have coming, give them a decent experience and, and manage the environment. Back in town at Putararu, as logging trucks and milk tankers hurtle down the main street, I caught up with Vanessa Eparaima, the chairperson of local iwi Nati Raukawa's settlement trust. She tells me that the mostly agricultural area is just not set up for a rapid growth in tourism. The visitor numbers just in, in January alone were 9,000 people. Uh, you used to be able to go there and experience the, the beautiful ambience, the peace, the tranquility of the area and it rapidly became an area that was full with people and all the impacts that people bring with them. She says so far there's no evidence that visitors to the spring are spending up large in the district's towns and she's worried about what the environmental damage could do to the area's future tourism prospects. If you look into the future and there is little to no change over the management of the spring te puna, over the management of the waiho, the river itself, uh, all I can see is that the environment will be damaged and uh, economic development, what would that look like? People will stop coming. An Auckland University of Technology tourism professor and director of the Tourism Research Institute, Simon Milne, says all over New Zealand the impact tourism has on communities has been mostly ignored by the industry as it makes plans to grow. Mangafo Mount Eden is a breathtakingly beautiful volcanic crater and handy vantage point for a selfie with Auckland's sky tower as a backdrop. It also happens to be Professor Milne's neighbourhood. To the left we can see uh, Mount Wellington. Uh, then we have uh, One Tree Hill over here, Mangakiki. In recent uh, years, the constant Mangaree. stream of visitors, cars and coach tours to Mangafo Mount Eden has upset locals and caused damage to the crater. The local residents were concerned about the growing numbers of tour buses that were parking at the summit. Uh, according to some of our counts during the summer months, we would see anything up to 12 to 15 tour buses all crammed into the summit, most of them with their engines running. Vehicles are now banned from the summit and people have to walk up the hill if they want to get that selfie. But the portaloos and plethora of anti-car theft signs show some problems remain. He says as more visitors come and they're encouraged to head off the beaten track, Friction between tourists and locals is emerging in all parts of the country, not just iconic tourist hotspots like Rotorua and Queenstown. And as another tour bus pulls away from the car park below, Simon Milne says some tourist companies appear to be getting a free ride using public infrastructure to operate their businesses. I think that any uh, economic activity that degrades uh, or damages the environment or the, the resource upon which uh, local people and perhaps the broader industry depends 
should have some role to play in helping to remediate that damage or to pay money to cover those related costs. Whether that be the summit of uh, this particular uh, maunga or whether we're talking about a public park in a small town by a lake in the South Island, if you are using particular types of facilities and resources, then there does need to be somewhere along the line some user-pays element coming into the mix. In a meeting room of a Wellington hotel, members of the Responsible Camping Forum are getting together to work out how to sort out some of the problems that have cropped up with the rise of freedom camping. The forum's 30 or so members include councils, government departments and businesses like campervan companies. I asked some of those campervan companies whether their businesses are getting a free ride on public infrastructure and whether they thought they should have to pay more for the impact their businesses have on locals and the environment. Grant Webster is the chief executive for Tourism Holdings Limited, which runs tours and hires and sells camper vans. He says his company already contributes. We pay GST and we pay company tax, uh, and our customers pay GST as well. So that is the tax system that, that, that exists in New Zealand. It's a fair and equitable and simple tax system. So you think that's enough then? Yeah, look, we actually, essentially altruistically, we do do more than that. So we work with the New Zealand Motorhome Caravan Association to help put in extra dump stations around the country. So we actually um, help with some funding over that over the years. In Waitomo, where you've got that rating-based issue and we've got an operation there, we actually own and operate the, the water and sewage for the whole of the Waitomo town. And, and we're losing money on that and we've put a significant amount of money into that infrastructure over a long period of time. Dan Alp, the Chief Operating Officer for the campervan company Juicy, says the industry needs government help. Yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a tough one. I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, as the rental, as the commercial operator, um, I guess we do have responsibility to to ensure that our customers have adequate places to stay and also have facilities. Um, but really, I guess it, it does come down to working with local government and and the councils around developing infrastructure in those areas. Our customers are going in there; they are supporting the local communities, albeit there's a cost to them being there. They're also putting money back into the economy. So um, there's a lot of people out there that if, if we start having to increase our prices to cover this, we'll just go out there and buy vehicles, we'll have no communication with them, we'll have no way of educating them and that's already a, a major issue right now as well. So I think um, you know, we don't just take the money, say goodbye and that's the end of it. We're developing applications to work with these guys so they can have information on the road um, and we can ensure that uh, ultimately we want to be here for the long haul, we don't want to, we're not here for the quick dollar to, to get out and and go and sit on a beach somewhere. We're here to preserve New Zealand and make sure that you know people can be enjoying this in many years to come. In the budget, the government's allocated $12 million over four years towards facilities like loos and rubbish bins in smaller communities that are getting a lot of tourists. The industry and some mayors have said it's a good start, but it's not enough. AUT's tourism professor Simon Milne says New Zealand may want to look at some sort of tourist tax or green levy. Well typically when we talk about tourism taxes they are built into travellers air tickets now. A um, good example of this is in recent years in Fiji we've seen a significant increase in the taxes that have been uh, levied there on visitors. 
paid through the tickets, and in fact the government there has actually labelled that uh, at least informally as a kind of a green tax, something to help protect and sustain the industry as it moves forward. I think the notion has certainly been floated in New Zealand of, of a similar kind of approach. Not everyone is in agreement, including the Tourism Industry Association. So it's it's been sold as a green tax because that's more palatable than just a you need to pay more because you're here. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's been sold as a green tax or whether it's been or how it's been sold or how it will be sold. But I mm. think research shows that if you can show the visitor that yes, you are paying a tax, but that tax is going back to protect the resources that you kind of used while you were in the country, the environment, the culture, etc. Then they are much more willing and and happy to pay that kind of money than if they think it's just going into some general uh, government coffers. I think for most visitors, though, realistically, if there was a small tax levied on their air ticket, they probably wouldn't notice it. I think it would be there would be no harm in in our country talking about the fact that there was a charge levied, and certainly if if you could tie that back into managing the resources that the industry uses, why not be open and upfront about the fact that this is helping to, if you like, protect the goose that lays the golden egg. The chief executive of the Conservation Lobby Group, the Environmental Defence Society, Gary Taylor, says now that tourism is such a big part of the economy, the government needs to start investing more in what he describes as New Zealand's natural capital. And he wants a tax collected at the border to pay for that investment. I'd call it an environment tax or a conservation tax and present it as a way of ensuring that thereafter they have the same freedom of access to New Zealand's um, uh, conservation estate and and to our other natural features as as other New Zealanders. I think people would be willing to pay. I don't think it needs to be a huge amount. It could ramp up over time. But it's quite clear that when people are coming here to see nature, we need to change our way of thinking about investment in nature and see it as something that's essential in order to you know, maintain the integrity and the offering that we have. The Tourism Minister, John Key, was unavailable to be interviewed by Insight, but the Associate Tourism Minister, Paula Bennett, says a border tax to address the impact of tourism is not part of the government's plan. But she's open to a discussion on it. We're not actively looking at another levy at the airport that we collect as, as people uh, come in. But equally, I've been talking to um, uh, Minister of Conservation, to, to Maggie Barry, about perhaps differential charging for tourists using facilities on, on dock parks, for example, and facilities. And that is something that I think is you know, well worth us exploring further. So I'm not completely closed off to the idea of A, a differential fee or some form of levy at some stage, but um, one that's collected at the airport is not something we're actively working on at the moment. Chris Roberts, the chief executive of Tourism Industry Aotearoa, formerly known as the Tourism Industry Association, says a border tax is the wrong way to go. The worst thing we can do is revert to the easy outcome and put some sort of big border tax on. I mean, that's really getting in the face of the visitor and saying, we just see you as a burden, so before you even get here, we're going to tax you because we, we see that you're going to cause us problems. We're much more in favour of, of user pays and those who are going to the pressure points, those who are contributing to the issues that crop up around the country are paying it, uh, their contribution at that point. Uh, a businessman from Sydney who's flying into Auckland once a month for a meeting 
he's not putting a load on, other than the hotel he's staying on, he, he's not putting a load on our infrastructure in New Zealand. Um, so why would we slap him with, with some sort of um, visitor tax? And he says the problem with building tourism infrastructure is people are reluctant to invest in it unless the tourists are coming at times outside of peak seasons. Otherwise, it's just not worth it. The National Tourism Marketing Agency, Tourism New Zealand's, recently announced it will halt all spending on marketing for the already frantic summer months. Its top priority is now to get more visitors to come in the off-season. And one market the tourism industry is looking at to try to deal with the tricky problem of getting people to come out of peak times is the country's nearly 100,000 international students. Hey, good morning. Our elementary class is losing one student, um, Tawe or Adrian. Please come up. At the Wellington English Language School, the Campbell Institute, it's assembly time, and another cohort of students is graduating from one of its courses. A 25-year-old Austrian, Mario Kana, is among those graduating today. Uh, I've travelled around the whole North Island, and yeah, probably my favourite places were Reglan. It was really awesome for surfing. He's already spent three weeks travelling since he arrived to do his course three months ago. And after today's ceremony, he'll be getting some more travel in in the South Island before he heads home. I want to go uh, skydiving at Abel Tasman. And we'll do a lot of biking in Queenstown. Yeah, probably bungee jumping, but I don't know yet. <laughs> and have you found it expensive? It's all right. Like... It's bad to say I don't care about money, but if I enjoy my time, I don't care about money, yeah. <laughs> so you feel a bit like this is your opportunity, so you try not to worry too much about... Yeah, totally, because it's really far away from Austria, and probably it's... Hopefully it's not my last time here, but probably it's my last time. Backpackers aged 18 to 24 make up about 11% of New Zealand's holiday arrivals and visitors spend. But the real money comes when international students, friends and family visit them while they're studying here. This weekend we go away, we go to the South Island, uh, to Picton and, uh, and then a little more south where the whales are. Where you can sit, so we go to. Michaela Poss is a public relations executive from Milan, Italy, and she's in New Zealand to visit her son Filippo, who's studying at the institute. Do you think that you would have planned a trip here if your son wasn't here? I don't think so. So I think that our students studying here are also a good opportunity for touristic sightseeing and discoveries of the country, absolutely. Tourism industry Aotearoa says the families of international students spend an average of $3,600 per visit, significantly more than the average international visitor spend of $2,300. They tend to stay longer too and often come outside peak season. And the industry hopes to encourage more of Australia's half a million international students to head to New Zealand while they're in this part of the world too. I asked the Institute's marketing manager, Matt Steele, how much travelling in New Zealand influences a student's decision to come here for study. Oh, very strong. Um, students come on a variety of different visas, um, but certainly even on a student visa there is some time at the end of their studies uh, in which they're allowed to uh, travel around New Zealand. Um, but we do have students coming on visitor visas, which are three-month-long visas. So... They're ostensibly here for travel, but they, they come and study with us for a few weeks uh, 
while they're on that uh, visa. But Matt Steele says while the relationship between the tourism and education industries is happening organically, it doesn't appear to be much of an overall strategy. Tourism industry Aotearoa released its Tourism 2025 framework two years ago to address the problem of low growth and a declining share of the global tourism market. The lobby group admits the sharp growth in tourist numbers and some of the negative side effects that brings has taken it by surprise. But some argue that many of those problems could have been avoided if the framework was led by the government and not the industry alone. Chris Roberts from Tourism Industry Aotearoa says the government has had involvement. We think there's real strength. It's one of the only national tourism frameworks in the world that's led and owned by the industry. Uh, previous attempts in New Zealand have been led by the government and as soon as there's a change of government, uh, it gets stuck on the shelf and forgotten and that's what happens typically around the world. If it's a government-owned strategy, it's aligned with one political party uh, and gets quickly thrown away when, when that political party loses power. So. Uh, we know that across the political spectrum um, there's support for Tourism 2025, so whatever happens uh, down the road at the Beehive, um, the framework can survive, and, and we think that's its real strength. OK, but do you think that some of the problems that we've seen in local communities and with the environment could have been headed off if perhaps the government played a larger role? After all, they are there to represent the public. We're just getting caught out by the rate of growth. so. Some of the issues that are now hot topics weren't being talked about two years ago. Back at the top of Mangafo Mount Eden, Simon Milne says around the world the bulk of tourism frameworks are developed by governments or in partnership with industry. It brings into focus the, the importance of, of thinking about those broader resources upon which tourism depends. And obviously the environment is one of those, but also our local communities, our host population and I think the framework does a very good job in dealing with the environmental dimensions of the industry and looking seriously at that. The next big issue for us is how do we manage those community or host dimensions and from my perspective that's a, an important reason to make sure that we have a strategy or a framework that's led by industry but by government as well, that we have something that is bringing community and local residents into that framework and strategising process. In the past month, the tourism industry has updated its 2025 framework to acknowledge that increased tourism can crowd out locals and that the industry has to make sure that it can keep the support of the public. The fact of the matter is we've seen 20% more visitors uh, almost in the last two years. They're spending almost 40% more. So the contribution to the economy has gone up incredibly quickly. And so it's just the pace of growth. So we're all having to scramble a bit now to respond to that. Uh, from our point of view, these are great problems to have. I'd much rather be talking about 40% growth in tourism than a flat tourism sector, which it had been for five years. And yes, it creates uh, issues, but also opportunities for us. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, it'd be great to hear from you. Our email's insight at rnz.co.nz or post a tweet. Our handle is at insightrnz. 
I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley and Gail Woods, with technical production by William Saunders.